morning. In order to uh, help you understand what I want to talk about this morning, I have to give you a brief geography lesson. There is a map here. This shows Israel in ancient times. It's where Israel is today with Jordan on the right side of it on the map and Syria and uh, Lebanon to the north. And um, this picture is, if you look at it, all of this brownish gray area down here and all of the green was the extent of Solomon's kingdom in the Old Testament, about 1,000 B.C., and uh, during that time, the nation of Philistia never, never was conquered by Israel, but the rest of it was the extent in all these other countries like Moab here, Edom, Ammon were all vassal states that paid tribute to Israel and were influenced by it in various ways. Now what happened is, in order to establish a kingdom with that size and, and strength, Solomon had to use a very heavy hand, and so he taxed the people very heavily, and he also conscripted labor, like forced labor, from all of the tribes. And by the time Solomon died, they were tired of this, and their whole uh, relationship to the king and to the empire was not very strong. And so when his son, Rehoboam, went to be king, crowned as king, he couldn't be crowned here in Jerusalem because uh, of tension with the northern tribes. And so he went all the way up from Jerusalem to Shechem, which was an ancient city in the history of the, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, to be crowned. And it turned out to be more of a negotiating session than it was a uh, crowning. And the northern tribes wanted to, uh, him to give in to certain demands, which he refused to do, and he lost the negotiations. And the kingdom split into two parts that are represented on this map, the northern part, the border about right here, the northern part was called Israel. They retained the ancient name of the kingdom. They were made up of ten, and shortly after that, nine of the tribes. And the southern kingdom kept the name of the largest of the, the uh, tribes, which was all down here, named Judah, but it also included Simeon and later Benjamin, divided into two parts. And for the rest of Israel's history, you have to deal with two nations, two lines of kings, and that sort of thing. So with that in mind, I'd like to read from God's word in 1 Kings chapter 12. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. 1 Kings chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to, Jeroboam, to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today, and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. 
But he abandoned the counsel of the old men, counsel that the old men gave him, and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and who stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your own tents, David, or excuse me, to your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, you tell us in your word that even now as we bow our heads in your heavenly throne room, there are mysterious creatures that surround you and cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. And you invite us as we come to you in our spirits, through your word, and through Jesus Christ, your Son, whom you have given, that we may enter into that very presence. You have told us that you, by your grace and power, through your Spirit, will speak to us as each one needs from your word. So we pray that you would open our minds to understand it and move our hearts to obey it. Thank you for the freedom that you give us in being here today. And we plead with you to continue to provide us with that outward freedom that has been enjoyed in the United States for so many uh, long centuries. Uh, And yet, we pray that you would give to us what is more important than that, an inner liberty of spirit to know you and to live for you. We entrust this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a culture that is in rebellion against God. And that's my message to you this morning. That's the basis of it. We live, you and I, in a culture that is in rebellion against God. 
And the most important thing we can do ought to be our primary concern is to figure out how we as Christians should respond to that fact. Now, I don't mean that every person in our culture is in rebellion, obviously, but I mean that most are. I don't mean that uh, every institution of society is in active rebellion against God, but it seems that most are. And even the churches have been impacted by this. I don't mean that every church, but there are many in rebellion today. I want to start with a quote from a famous man you may not know. His name was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was the most famous Russian novelist of the 20th century. He was born in 1918, right after the Russian Revolution, the communist revolution that took over the country. And so his childhood was spent during the time when the Communist Party was attempting to um, take over and control the country and turn it into the Soviet empire that it eventually became. He grew up to write eight soul-searching novels that exposed the sickness of the communist system to its core. And when he won uh, the Templeton Prize in 1983, he spoke, and he said in part this, more than half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God, they said. That is why all this has happened. Since then... He said, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that unheaval. But if I were to be asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Well, that's what I want to say this morning. People have forgotten God. And I'm not so much concerned to convince you that that is true as I am to show you Here's what happens, according to Scripture, when people forget God, when they abandon God. What we're doing in this three-week series that is meant to lead us up to next week when we're going to think about how we should respond to the culture in which we live is we're thinking of really four key generations in the history of Israel. It's a pattern that's repeated many times in the Bible, but it started with David, the faithful king, the man after God's own heart, who was followed by his son Solomon. And Solomon compromised the faith. And as I said last week, when one generation compromises, the next generation abandons. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. In the third generation, Rehoboam abandoned the covenant and abandoned God. And that, I'm saying, is to some degree where we are today. Now, as I said last week, Solomon was characterized by two Um, contradictory traits in one person at one and the same time, it seems. He's represented in certain places and certain decisions that he made and things that he did as a man of great faithfulness. 
He, we are told at the beginning of his reign, he loved God and he wanted to serve him. And he did some rather astounding things in light of that. But he mixed that with a willingness at some very key points throughout his life to compromise the faith. And those two things are presented to us in Solomon so that he built this tremendous empire. But it was an empire that was very weak. And here we have the prime example of what happens when one generation compromises the faith. The next generation abandons it. The scripture shows us three things that happened in the life of Rehoboam, his son. What happens when people abandon God? Well, the first thing we find in the life of Rehoboam is that uh, when people abandon God, they also abandon others. When people abandon God, when we abandon God, we abandon each other. It's like when we forget God, then... uh, Everyone is forgotten. Now, this comes about in the passage that I just read to you, uh, actually. The the tribes in the northern part of uh, Israel that retained the name Israel, those tribes said to Rehoboam, what portion do we have in David? Now, David was long dead, but what they meant is David, they knew, had been given these distinct promises by God that he would have a lasting dynasty. His male descendants would reign on the throne until the coming of the Messiah, which they had no idea when that would be in the distant future, that there would always be a male descendant of David. And so when they said, what portion do we have in David? It's a rather um, ominous kind of statement. In those words, they were throwing away the covenant. They were throwing away the promises made to David and the blessings that he had given to him. They were also breaking ancient relationships that went back a thousand years The tribes, the 12 tribes, were all descendants of Abraham through his grandson, Jacob, who was renamed by God Israel. And so all the tribe were called the sons or the people of Israel. And at this point, they are willing to break all of those ancient ties, all of the shared history that they had. Now, it's true that the division of the kingdom is understandable if you read the Bible carefully. For one thing, Some of these tensions between the north and the south went back to ancient tensions in the book of Genesis between the actual brothers who eventually became the tribes. Others are explained by Solomon's empire-building efforts in which he aggressively taxed the people and um, raised forced labor from the tribes. And then it's true also that Rehoboam's assertion that he was going to continue his father's heavy-handed kind of leadership made it seem inevitable that the tribes would break apart. But what I want to ask is, isn't it true that that's what we're experiencing today? Isn't it true that when people abandon God, they begin to abandon each other? And as we slip farther and farther from God as a society, isn't it exactly the kind of breakdown and break up of society, that, what we are experiencing? Alexander Hamilton was one of the founders of our country, not a, not a president, but a famous man and writer. He's the one who called America the grand experiment, uh, a phrase that has been used throughout our history for 200 and almost 50 years. The grand experiment, what he meant is that all societies of the world before we became a country have been based essentially on shared, uniform ties of race, ethnicity, language, culture, and religion. 
for example, we still experience that to some degree. And if you think about China, this vast country with over a billion people, it's important to understand that 93% of the population of China is Han Chinese, one ethnic group. Well, that kind of uniformity kind of gives you a sense of natural boundaries. But when America came around, people said, we're going to try something different. And this is the genius of the the American founders. We're going to do something different. We're going to experiment with forming a society that is not does not use racial, religious, ethnic uniformity to identify itself. It's going to be formed around something different, some basic ideas. And the ideas are liberty and equality. Those are the two things that the founding fathers wrote about. And what they pictured was that we would be a culture, a country that was a melting pot made up of Northern and Southern Europeans and Asians and Africans and Arabic peoples. All of these people would live in the United States, but because of a common shared belief in liberty and equality, we would identify as a country. And in many ways, that has happened. There is one thing left out often of people's historical uh, perspective on the United States. They don't understand, it seems at times, that liberty and equality were not the only two values, but there was something that explained or shaped the understanding of liberty and equality, and that was there was a common belief in God and our accountability to God. I'm not answering the question whether we were a Christian nation to begin with. I think not, but some people think so. And it's usually because you have to define terms carefully in order to even discuss that. That's not really the issue. We do need to remember that we've had 45 presidents, and of all 45 presidents, only one president has ever stated actively and openly that he is not a Christian, and that is Thomas Jefferson, the third president. He was not a Christian. That's quite evident, and from the things that he wrote, the fact that he never attended church or anything like that. So I'm not talking about the spiritual foundation in a specific sense, but what you can discern when you read any of the Founding Fathers is a common belief that there is a God to whom we are accountable. And so ideas of liberty and equality were shaped by this belief in an eternal creator who gives to us moral laws. And those three things really were the genius of the grand experience of the experiment of the United States. What I need to say is that that's been largely abandoned today. What has been abandoned is the belief in a creator God to whom we are accountable. Well, many people believe in God. But they don't regard him as being the moral ruler of the universe who gives to us specific ways that he wants us to live in order to reflect his character. They don't think that way. They think that there is a God, but he's there just kind of to help us do whatever we want to do. And now what happens as a result when people forget God is that society begins to disintegrate. We've always been different races, different cultures, backgrounds, things like that. But what's happening now is that those become the identifying factor for every person. We are all now identified, at least according to the news, by our racial background, our political affiliation, our gender, and things like that. And each group is considered to be competing with the others for their view to be heard in society and for uh, government to meet their needs. And even those of us who are a part of this church, when we listen to the news and they say the evangelicals do something, we know they're talking about us, even though no one ever defines evangelical. 
Nobody knows what it means. And in fact, it seems to be this elastic term that's stretched to include all kinds of people who don't really care for each other in real life. But we're seen as a voting block. Uh, That's the only thing that really makes us important. What I'm saying is that when you start to break society down into competing groups, whatever you base them on, then you're beginning to experience a society in disintegration because there's no common focus. And each group is just asserting its own demands and, and its own rights and things like that. That's what happens when people abandon God. When people abandon God, they abandon each other. Now, that's not all. Solzhenitsyn said people have forgotten God. And that's my thesis this morning. People have forgotten God. And what happens when people forget God? Well, we live in a culture in which God is no longer regarded as the authoritative center of human life. And since that is true, then people don't only abandon each other, they also abandon good judgment. They, they abandon common sense. Now, we, we see that in the life of Rehoboam so clearly. There are, there are many examples, starting with the fact that immediately after the northern tribes say, you know, we're not going to have anything to do with you to, to your own tents. Let's go take off. Immediately after that, Rehoboam sends the, the guy who was the head of raising conscripted labor. Like, okay, you know, you don't want to. I'm going to raise a, a labor force so I can do the things I want to do. That was the stupidest thing you could imagine. But let me just tell you one thing that happened at the end of his life that just shows a lack of perspective, a lack of good judgment. In the fifth year of his reign, we are told, because he had abandoned the Lord, the God of Israel, the king of Egypt came from the south, and he attacked Judah, plundered the temple and the royal treasury, and moved all the way up, we know from history, into the northern kingdom and and, uh, raped and pillaged and plundered all over there. And um, what you would expect at a time like that is for the king to call a national day of mourning like it was evident that something was going wrong. These things didn't happen when Solomon, his father, was king. And, And you would call for a national day of mourning in which the nation would be called to repent and plead with God to restore them to the covenant blessings that they had. But instead, what does Rehoboam do when the Egyptians come and they plunder the temple and they take, for example, these shields made out of pure gold that had been all around the walls of the temple that Solomon built. They took them millions and millions of dollars worth of money. Here's what Rehoboam did. King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. Oh, what a pathetic image. God had appointed Israel to be the means of blessing to the entire world. And he had begun to fulfill that under David. And part of what Solomon did was in real fulfillment of this intention that Israel would be the chosen people who had the place of worship and all the nations would be drawn in But when it begins to decline, which is a sign of God's displeasure that they had abandoned him, Rehoboam settles for the appearance of greatness without the reality. Now, isn't that exactly what you and I see happening every day? Isn't appearance put in the place of reality again and again in modern life? It's like all 
polish and no furniture. That's what happens when people forget God, when they abandon him, when they pretend they can make life work on their own. You know, today what we're told is that freedom is not what freedom was thought to be when there was also this belief in the creator God who had moral uh, control over life or influence over life. That's not what freedom is today. Freedom today is a radical freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want, to be whatever you want, regardless of its impact on another person. So, for example, I'm told that on Facebook there are some 50 ways of identifying your gender. Now, I don't mean to make something very complex, overly simple, in the sense that I, I realize, and you should know, that sex is a biological reality. You're either male or female and born that way. That's biologically based. It's empirically, you know, something you can scientifically demonstrate. Whereas gender is a social construct in the sense that gender is what we personally identify ourselves to be as we go through life. And most people, the vast majority, as they go through life, might question their gender identity, but at least 99% of men and about 92% of women will eventually, by adulthood, decide that their biological sex is the same as their gender. I'm not trying to make something really simple. There's all kinds of questions about that. But what I want to say is you can't really function in a culture where feelings reign supreme, where they're put in the place of reality, because we're told that God made us what we are, male, female, black, white, brown, whatever it is. And that's the reality we have to deal with. There's nothing wrong with me as a white northern European man identifying with a different culture than the one that I am from, I feel that very strongly when I go to Albania like I'll do next month. I really enjoy it and I enjoy the culture that I'm in, but I don't pretend that I'm Albanian just because I feel close to them. But that's what happens when feelings reign supreme. So let me ask you a question. Let's say a woman's heritage is purely Northern European, Scandinavian, blonde hair, blue eyes, that kind of thing. But she feels like a Native American. Shouldn't she be allowed to be treated as one? So we are told today. Well, the question is, we give to the First Nations people, the Native Americans who live in our country, we give to them, at least the states do in various ways, certain rights and privileges. In some states you can have college education and other grants. There's a right to use certain kind of fishing in Michigan for those tribes that are indigenous, were indigenous to this state and so forth. Are we saying that this woman, because she feels like a Native American, she identifies herself as one, should have all of those rights that we extend to Native Americans? And if we do that, how many people will all of a sudden begin to feel like Native Americans themselves, too? <laughs> or, or think about a man. Let's say a man is 35 years old, but he feels like he's 13 years old. He identifies with 13-year-olds. Will we allow him to be with underage girls and not consider it a crime? Because after all, he feels like he's 13. And you say, well, that's silly. And it is. It is because it's all silly in varying degrees. All I'm saying is that you can't make reality be trumped by um, feelings. In the case of the woman, there's a genealogical table that demonstrates that she has no Native American blood. In the case of the man, there's a birth certificate that tells you exactly how old the man is. Those are realities you have to deal with, and the feelings can't be used to give them certain rights and privileges that don't belong 
to them. And all I'm saying is that that's what society does when it begins to disintegrate, when the relationships are abandoned, and freedom becomes a radical kind of freedom to do or be whatever I want at any point. But our society seems to have no limits on either freedom or equality. They're being carried to their logical extremes, unchecked by either a creator God, who we've abandoned, or unchecked by any notions of community that make me responsible to a larger group of people in the society in which I live. When people abandon God, they abandon each other, and they abandon good judgment. And the last thing I want to note is when people abandon God, they also abandon worship. When people forget God, they abandon worship. For three years, we are told many people came from the northern tribes down to the south after this breakup of the kingdom because there were still in the north many faithful people who wished to maintain their relationship to God through the covenant he had established with the people of Israel. And they wanted to go to the central sanctuary in Jerusalem, and so they moved to the south. We're told that for three years they strengthened Rehoboam's hand. He was relatively faithful during that time, but in the fourth year, He threw off uh, his former faithfulness and showed his true colors. He let loose, and here's what happened when he let loose. There's a passage of chapter 14 that records exactly uh, kind of the nature of his kingdom. It says, Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all that their fathers had done. They also built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abomination of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. You know, the famous author a hundred years ago, G.K. Chesterton, once said this, when people cease to believe in God, the problem is not that they believe nothing. The problem is that they will believe anything. Let me say it again. When people cease to believe in God, the problem is not that they believe nothing. The problem is that they will believe anything. And that's so true. What you have pictured here is Israel, the people of God, in covenant with him, who at the base of Mount Sinai heard God speak the Ten Commandments and were so terrified by it, they told Moses, don't let God say any more to us. You go up on the mountain and get the rest of the covenant standards for us. The the kingdom of priests, the holy nation that God had established, who were meant to be the means of blessing the whole world in fulfillment of a promise given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. They turned and abandoned the temple and the priesthood. They forgot God and the law that was meant to guide their lives to the glory of God. And what happened is not just that they were static, they just lived without God, it's that they gave themselves to wallow in everything the world offered. That's what we see today. They, they, they adopted, essentially, the Canaanite fertility worship up on every place that is around. It was connected with cult prostitution and all kinds of degraded things. Isn't that what we see in the world today? 
the media gives it this positive spin. They say to us, people today are less religious but more spiritual. Well, let me interpret that for you. They're using the word religion to mean a group identity. Religion is like, in the way it's being used, is is like what we are. We meet together with a sense of the same God, the same qualities that we see in God as we understand them in the Bible, and we're each developing that through his word as we come and we worship together, and together we acknowledge God's greatness and his grandeur and his right to rule of our lives, and we ask him to make that a reality in our life. In other words, religion is a group identity. Spirituality, on the other hand, as it's used in that sentence, is just a self-identity. A person says, I feel spiritual. Whether or not anyone else cares, knows, agrees that I'm spiritual, doesn't matter to me. I feel spiritual. And the fact is, the people of God in the world, the church, as we are called now, are a community. We are always a community in all generations, and we gather together to worship and proclaim the greatness of God, to hear his word, to seek to frame our lives after his teachings, and we struggle with that with each other in order to help each other do that. Christian faith is not just another way to feel spiritual in life. You know, as a young Christian, I was taught something. Uh, essentially, I was taught that non-Christians can't worship God. Because after all, they don't know God in a personal way. So having them come into a meeting like this and sing songs where we say things about God, you are great, you are wonderful, you're a redeemer, Jesus died, all of these things, that's meaningless because you're making them mouth words that they don't believe, and that's just hypocritical. And so what needs to be done on Sunday morning is in order to attract people to Christ, You need to provide them with services where they see and they hear things. They don't participate. So don't sing songs. You have perform music from up front that everyone sits and watches. And then there might be dramas or videos or things that will help uh, speak to them and the message is meant to speak to them. And all of that made sense to me. Because after all, isn't it hypocritical to expect people to say words they don't believe? But my thoughts changed through the years, I have to tell you. And they changed primarily as I read the Bible and primarily as I read the Psalms. When you read the Psalms, you come across all these places where it says things like this. Psalm 117, verse 1. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. The word translated nations there is goyim, which means Gentiles. In other words, the, the Psalms call people from all over the world to praise God. They command people to praise God. And that's what worship is. And here's the reason that God calls everyone in the world to worship him. It is our duty as human beings to worship our creator. It's our duty to do that. It's not just a privilege, as we view it. It's our duty to do that, to give to God the glory and the honor that he deserves as the creator and the ruler of the universe. And it's only in seeking to fulfill our duty that we can come into a place where our, the reality of what we're experiencing might be exposed. This is what I experienced as a young person before I came to Christ. I began to go to meetings and church services in which we were singing songs. And I just assumed that I was a Christian. After all, I'm not Jewish and I grew up in America, you know, and so I, I must be a Christian. I thought that was true. But the more we sang and the more weeks I was there and I talked with people, I began to realize I'm missing something that they have. 
Perhaps there's something more to this Christianity than I ever conceived of before. And in what is really called in the Bible repentance, I began to see that these things I were singing I could not do from the heart because how far I fell short from what God wanted for me. And it's only in that context that people can really understand the gospel. And that's why worship is so important. You see, it's in that context that I began to experience that my worship was, in fact, hypocritical. And it wasn't that somebody else was forcing me to be hypocritical. It's that I came in, and I expected I can do what everybody else is doing. But for me to acknowledge the grandeur of God and yet to live my life so far from him, I began to see that's not, that's not what this whole thing's about. Now, what I'm saying is when people forget God, they forget they're responsible to God. And they create their own ways of thinking about God. They fail to worship him. They don't acknowledge who he is. And that's what's happening in our culture. More and more as time goes on. And why is it happening? Well, I could only repeat the words of Solzhenitsyn. People have forgotten God. That is why all this is happening. When people abandon God, they abandon each other. When people abandon God, they abandon good judgment. When people abandon God, they abandon worship. And that's where you and I are today. We live in a culture which is in a very rapid pace doing all three of those things at once. And the real question we have to deal with is, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to respond, if we are Christians, to the fact, the reality of our culture in rebellion against God? The answer I'm going to think about next week with you, but let me tell you what the answer won't be so you can know that this fall we're not going to be talking about these things. The answer isn't found in the past. It's not found in trying to recreate some time of greatness whenever it was in your mind. The Bible knows only one time of greatness, and that was before the fall. And everything since then is varying degrees of rebellion. It's not found in the past for us in some wonderful time when America was great and life was wonderful. If the Bible is any guide, God is not all that concerned for America, at least not in an ultimate sense. God is primarily concerned for his own glory and that that would be shown through his people above all else. So it's not going to be found in the past. I don't think that the answer is going to be found in armed revolution against the government, though I would predict that in the next few years we'll start hearing more people talking about that kind of thing, but that's not for Christians. And the answer can't be found in political power, as if we as a voting bloc could sway the whole direction of the country. And I don't mean that we shouldn't vote at all. I think that that's important. But all I'm saying is that can't be the sole response that we make to the reality of our culture. Next week, we'll look at the answer. Let's pray. Again, our gracious God, we come to you and thank you that you are supreme above all things. And you tell us that it is necessary for our good that we acknowledge your supremacy in every way. That we will only find our greatest purpose in life and you will only pour out your richest blessings upon us when we acknowledge that. Help us to do that, Father. Help us to think together about what it means to respond to a culture and a time in which people are increasingly drifting and in many cases running as fast as they can away from you. 
Help us to understand that whatever it is we do, it must be governed by the teachings of Christ, and especially by the law of love. We pray that you would help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.